Okay, round two. Name something that's not boring. A laundry? Ooh, a book club. Computer solitaire, huh? Ah, oh, sorry. We were looking for Chumba Casino. That's right. Chumbacasino.com has over 100 casino-style games. Join today and play for free for your chance to redeem some serious prizes. Chumbacasino.com. No purchase necessary. Over by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Good evening, everyone, and welcome to Addiction Treatments That Work. I'm your host, Kenneth Anderson. Uh, tonight, it is May 1st of 2014. Tonight, our guest is Dr. Jeffrey Junig. Uh, he's an MD. He prescribes buprenorphine. He's going to share some of his personal experiences with addiction uh, with us as well. He has a book that's on Amazon, A User's Guide to Methadone. He does the Suboxone Forum online. So we're going to bring him on in just a minute. First, I'm going to do a little blurb for our website and our book. Our website is hamsnetwork.org. We are a free-of-charge lay-led support group. <coughs> for people <coughs> for people who want to make any positive change in their drinking habits from safer drinking to reduced drinking to quitting altogether our book is called how to change your drinking a harm reduction guide to, to alcohol it is available from amazon and for more information go to hamsnetwork.org slash book our guest uh, jeffrey junig is with us right now i'm going to bring him on hello jeff can you hear me yes i can uh, thank you very much how are you I'm doing great. How are you doing this evening? I'm just fine, thank you. Thank you. That's nice, well, that's nice uh, to be here. Well, it's great to have you. Do you want to share a little bit about your personal story uh, with, to our audience? Sure. Um, I I uh, uh, started out, you know, I went to college and then went to graduate school um, and uh, got a PhD in neurochemistry. was always fascinated with how chemicals work and how the uh, the mind works, that type of thing. And after after getting my PhD, went to medical school, um, thinking to combine uh, the science into medicine. And uh, I went to uh, University of Rochester in upstate New York. Um, after that, I did a, a residency in anesthesia at uh, the University of Pennsylvania Hospital System, and uh, came back to Wisconsin, where I came from originally, um, to uh, work as an anesthesiologist and pain physician. And that would be in the early 1990s. And uh, um, after, shortly after uh, becoming um, an active uh, uh, anesthesiologist, um, my, uh, one of my children was uh, taking, I was, we were giving him cough medicine for a cold. He was uh, two or three years old at the time. And um, uh, after he got over the cold, the cough medicine sat in the cabinet. And eventually, uh, when I uh, had a cold, I took the cough medicine and, uh, you know, it worked great for the cold. It had codeine in it and um, over time um, just kept taking it. And, um, of course, as I developed tolerance, I went from a teaspoon uh, to a tablespoon to several tablespoons and um, and eventually uh, was uh, getting large amounts of cough medicine, which can be uh, gotten over-the-counter um, in, in many states uh, if you sign for it. Um, and at some point, um, as things in my, my marriage and life really became problematic, um, I uh, went into a, a treatment program that was an outpatient program and um, uh, really out of desperation began you know, doing the steps and going to AA, and at the time, it worked for me, and uh, uh, I was so scared uh, about, uh, you know, where, where I almost went. Uh, um, I, I did well for a number of years, but then about seven years later, I was uh, traveling in the Bahamas um, on a vacation, and I saw coding over the counter, and um, again, the voice inside, uh, the addict inside, uh, thought it'd be a good idea uh, to try it since I'm out of the country. Again, the logic you know, of the addict that it wouldn't really count uh, out of the country. And um, uh, used it, came back, didn't use, thought I dodged a bullet. But then six months later, when I, uh, again, had a, a cold or something, some excuse, I, uh, I thought that uh, I must have control over it now, and I began 
using. And from there, it spread very quickly uh, this second time to the tools of the trade and uh, the medications um, that I, you know, worked with as an anesthesiologist, and it progressed to uh, to use of all the narcotics, um, uh, morphine and Demerol and fentanyl. Um, eventually, uh, uh, after a couple of um, experiences that were, where I almost died, um, I was confronted by the hospital staff and um, basically told that I could uh, uh, give up being a doctor um, or I could go to treatment and maybe I could be a doctor again, and um, which is the choice I took. Um, I went into treatment. I was there for uh, several months. Actually, I, I was released the day following um, 9-11, um, the 9-11 attacks, and kind of a crazy time for everybody, a horrible time. Um, uh, and then entered into a monitoring program for six years, and uh, um, I've done well since that time. Uh, at some point, I decided I didn't return to anesthesia. I, I, I knew that um, I, would, I would likely die if I went back to that field. And as much as I, I really enjoyed the specialty, uh, I decided um, that I really had to do something else. And so I uh, returned to residency, this time in psychiatry, and kind of started again at the bottom as a as a resident and went through uh, three years of psychiatry residency um, and became a board certified psychiatrist um, oh around 2006 or so I believe it was and um, at that time uh, buprenorphine and suboxone were uh, just starting to become more known in the Midwest and. Um, um, as someone who uh, I worked in the prison system uh, initially and was trying to get a private practice going. Um, and that's when I started um, learning more about buprenorphine. I started to prescribe it and uh, was just amazed by what I saw. And um, um, my experiences prescribing it really uh, made me a true believer in the medication. And um, since then, uh, I've been trying to take on some of the stigma about long-term treatment of opioid dependence, trying to um, educate uh, uh, people about uh, the truth about addiction, uh, and and trying to uh, encourage people to treat addiction as an illness, not not just to say it's an illness, but to to really treat it like an illness. Meaning, whenever we have a question about how we should handle this situation, we should think how we would handle any other illness and compare uh, how we treat addiction and see uh, see how we're doing. And you find out very quickly that we don't treat addiction <laughs> like an illness. Mm -hmm. um, we got mm -hmm. a long ways to go. Mm -hmm. Now, do you personally, are you using any maintenance therapy yourself, methadone or buprenorphine? I do not. Uh, I do not. I won't ever rule it out um, if I, if I, you know, I, I'm knocking on wood here, and if I ever were to relapse, um, that would be the the choice I would take. Um, but at this point, I I do not take a maintenance agent. So you've been abstinent from opioids since uh, right after 9/11. Correct. Yep, about 14 years now. Mm-hmm. Mm -hmm. um, well, tell me a little bit about buprenorphine. Buprenorphine is an opioid, but how is it different from other opioids? The main difference with buprenorphine, chemically, it's what's called a partial agonist. Uh, and uh, what that essentially translates into is that it has blocking effects and activating effects at the opiate receptor. What makes it really an amazing substance for treating addiction, um, if a person can imagine a chart where we have uh, on the up-down axis, the y-axis, we have the effect of the drug, and on the horizontal, the flat axis, we have the blood level of the drug, what happens as the blood level goes up with other opioids, as the blood level goes up, the effect goes up. So two times as much heroin causes two times as much of an effect. But 
with buprenorphine um, in the doses that are used to treat addiction, um, you very quickly reach a plateau where as the blood level continues to go up, the effect stays constant. And so uh, the person uh, wakes up in the morning, they have a certain blood level of buprenorphine left in their system from the day before that's having and a certain opioid effect, say an opioid effect of one. And as they go uh, through the day, they take their dose of buprenorphine, their blood level goes up, their opioid effect is still one uh, at that point when the blood level peaks. And then throughout the day, their blood level comes back down as they metabolize the medication. Um, through the day, again, the effect is still one. Uh, overnight, it's the same. They wake up the next morning, the effect is still the same. And so the way the body responds to things, when something is constant, our body tends to tune it out. And, and uh, that occurs you know, psychologically. You can, if you notice your dog uh, sitting in the corner of the room, if you snap your fingers, the dog will look at you, you snap again, he might glance at you, you snap again, he doesn't look at you anymore. And that's sort of what happens in the body uh, when there's a blood level that remains completely constant. Um, there's, there's the psychological uh, ignoring it, but even chemically we develop, develop a tolerance so that our effect to it just disappears. And so it, it allows buprenorphine to basically be there in the background uh, having this constant effect, but the body tunes it out. And uh, the brain essentially is tricked into thinking that nothing is ever wearing off and nothing is ever coming on. And um, that's what makes it different. Uh, really uh, uh, just a, a, an amazing you know, little, little feature of the, the chemical um, that most doctors don't understand. And, and if anyone followed kind of that description of how it works, you know more than uh, 90% of the physicians working in emergency rooms across the country, um, unfortunately. Mm -hmm. Are uh, buprenorphine, uh, suboxone, and subutex, are they all the same thing? Um, buprenorphine is the chemical that does everything. And um, suboxone is a brand name for a combination of buprenorphine plus naloxone. The, the principle behind suboxone is that when a person takes buprenorphine, they put it under their tongue, it gets absorbed through the surfaces inside the mouth, and whatever gets swallowed gets destroyed by the liver. It gets taken up by the portal vein and destroyed very quickly at the liver. And the naloxone also gets destroyed when it gets swallowed. The naloxone doesn't get absorbed at the mouth as well as buprenorphine does. And so the naloxone, when taken properly in suboxone, the naloxone plays no role at all. About 3% of it gets absorbed orally, um, but otherwise it's there so that if a person were to dissolve and inject the suboxone, the naloxone would then work intravenously and, uh, and, and precipitate withdrawal. At least that's, that's what it's supposed to do. Um, it, uh, it doesn't compete real well with buprenorphine, and uh, there's some question how well you know, it, it deters people from injecting buprenorphine, but uh, um, that's what it's intended to do anyway. So uh, I'm just going to note that uh, naloxone is also known as Narcan. That's the drug that uh, puts you in withdrawal. It reverses the heroin overdose, but also Correct. it puts you right into withdrawal. So, um, so when people when uh, people with addictions when they take Suboxone as a medication, are they high or are they normally functional, or how does it affect them mentally? <sighs> You know that's a, a good question and a good point. It, it, they uh, they feel normal, and you know a lot of the articles uh, that you'll read out there will say uh, we'll talk about people getting high on Suboxone or on buprenorphine. But an addict uh, who takes it knows that, uh, or a person addicted to opioids who takes it knows that it, it, you really can't get high from it unless you have 
no tolerance to opioids. And so if a person is not an opioid user and they take buprenorphine, they will get a very strong opioid effect. And in fact, there have been some deaths in people. Uh, we had a horrible one in, in Milwaukee a number of years ago of a young person who wasn't an opioid user who took uh, buprenorphine or suboxone and buprenorphine in suboxone in a combination with other respiratory depressants and died from the combination. For a person who uses heroin or oxycodone, um, though, their tolerance is higher. And the big problem with those patients when you start them on suboxone or buprenorphine is avoiding what we call precipitated withdrawal. Uh, when you put a person on buprenorphine, the person's tolerance is quickly set at the level where buprenorphine has its maximum effect. And, and that's equal to about 40 milligrams of methadone. Uh, a person who uses an opioid that has a higher potency than that um, risks going into withdrawal when they take Suboxone. And that's why we, we always have a patient go at least 24 hours without taking an opioid uh, before starting Suboxone or buprenorphine. Otherwise, the medication will cause them to go into withdrawal. Um, if a person is on buprenorphine and they take more buprenorphine, the ceiling effect keeps it from having any greater effect. And um, you know, so a person without an opioid tolerance that takes buprenorphine would, would get an opioid effect, but within a, a week or so would become tolerant to those effects and would start to feel normal. Uh, a person who's on a, a higher dose or a high dose of heroin or oxycodone, when they take buprenorphine, they often feel a little, uh, a little lousy as if they're having low-grade withdrawal for a couple days, and eventually they get used to that uh, level of opioid effect that they get from the buprenorphine, and they feel normal. Um, but I, uh, uh, I would challenge anyone to sit down with any one of my patients and um, tell which one um, is using buprenorphine and which one isn't, and um, they, they're as normal as, uh, as anybody. Um, they feel normal. Um, you know, there's, I don't want to you know, get too, too, uh, too detailed with things, but there's uh, some people, after they're on buprenorphine for a while, uh, they make the mistake, I believe it's a mistake, of, of trying to get off the medication, and, and they start to make that the center of their their lives. You know, I have to get off Suboxone. Their their wife wants them off it. Their their uh, mother wants them off it. Their you know, brother wants them off the medication. And um, there's been a couple of studies that looked at people who stopped buprenorphine or Suboxone, um, and uh, they don't do well. If they stop after one year, the relapse rate is around 95% within a year. And so... Um, I think it's best thought of as a, a, a long-term medication for most people. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Is there much danger of overdose with the Suboxone? How does it compare to other opiates like in morphine or heroin? You know, you look at the numbers, and in the last 10 years since uh, uh, Suboxone and buprenorphine came out, they came out in 2003. They were the legislature approved the treatment in 2000, and the FDA approved the drug in 2003. So it's been about 10 or 11 years. There have been about 450 reported deaths uh, where buprenorphine contributed to the death was one of the drugs in the person's system. Um, that compares to about 35,000 overdose deaths every year in the U.S. And so, you know, 410 years versus 35,000 non-buprenorphine deaths every year. And what that tells me is that it's really difficult to overdose on buprenorphine. Um, the people who have died while buprenorphine is in their system uh, generally uh, have to have a low opioid tolerance. So they have to be either non-opioid users or uh, you know, the children who've never taken opioids, um, and they, they also 
not so much in, in toddlers, but in, in older people, teens and adults, they need to have a second respiratory depressant. Um, so the, the death, uh, almost all of the deaths from buprenorphine are from combinations of buprenorphine, usually with the benzodiazepine, a Xanax-type drug, um, in people who uh, do not have a tolerance to opioids. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. I'm just going to mention, too, as long as we're talking about overdoses, uh, the vast majority of overdoses are caused by mixing drugs, uh, not by a, a single drug alone, not by heroin alone or not by morphine alone. Um, I was looking at the figures for New York City. It's like more than 90% of the overdoses are caused by mixing an opiate with like a benzodiazepine or with alcohol is, is one, and cocaine. And th- those combos are very deadly. Yeah. And when I was an anesthesiologist, we, you know, we, we learned that very quickly as part of our residency that when, it, when you give what's called a Versed, which is midazolam, a benzodiazepine, with fentanyl, which is an opioid, uh, that's the most common combination used uh, to sedate people in the operating room. But they multiply each other's effects on respiration. And so, uh, you know, it's, it's, it's interesting. Uh, as an anesthesiologist, we never would think of giving that combination of medication without a pulse oximeter telling how much oxygen is in the person's system, you know, nasal cannula blowing oxygen into their nose and, you know, a heart monitor and uh, it, it's just really something you know, now to think about uh, how many people are just, uh, just taking those combinations and uh, you know, going to bed in someone's basement. Mm-hmm. Now, with methadone, um, there's a whole bunch of regulations in the U.S. You have to get it at a clinic. You have to like, come to the clinic every day. What's the deal with uh, suboxone, with uh, buprenorphine? Uh, buprenorphine um, is is different. Um, you know, some methadone clinics now are using buprenorphine and and they're dispensing it as opposed to prescribing it. But the real advantage to suboxone and buprenorphine is uh, the ability to prescribe it um, uh, and not have to dispense it every morning to a person. And so. Uh, there's uh, to become certified to prescribe buprenorphine. Uh, a physician takes an eight-hour course. It's not a difficult course uh, by any means. It doesn't. Uh, it's not the reason why there aren't doctors prescribing buprenorphine. Um, but uh, they have to take a course. They have to agree to provide counseling if counseling is indicated, um, or refer to counseling. Um, they, there's a couple other agreements, but the agreement I think that really keeps doctors from prescribing the medication is that uh, they have to sign off on allowing uh, DEA inspections um, without uh, cause. And so um, basically uh, they um, sign off that the uh, the DEA can, can come in and uh, ask to see the records of the people taking uh, the Suboxone and review those records, um, inspect the premises. And when you think about it, in a in a day when um, many doctors are employees of hospital systems, um, it's reasonable to see why not many doctors uh, get certified because uh, hospital systems are not thrilled, I think, with the idea of um, having you know, the offices in their hospitals be uh, subject to random inspections uh, without any you know any cause. Um, without you know a warrant or anything like that, and I think that's probably the biggest. Again, I don't have evidence to prove that that's the biggest factor, but when I talk to other doctors, that's certainly uh, something that I hear. Um, the other thing is that uh, your first year of prescribing Suboxone or buprenorphine, um, you can only have 30 patients on the drug, and then. After a year, you can petition to or, or request the DEA uh, to have that number increase to 100. Um, but you can't have more than 100 patients treated for addiction using uh, Suboxone or buprenorphine. Um, and I, I should use the word buprenorphine because there are now other brands of buprenorphine out there besides Suboxone. And, um, I think as time goes on, that will just increase. Um, I'm sure Suboxone will always be part of the, the lexicon, but uh, mm-hmm. um, more and more there will be, you know, Zubsolve is another form of the medication. 
Um, there's a, a drug called Bunavale that's in the uh, approval process. There probably will be long-term injections of buprenorphine. There's one called probufine um, that's out there that hasn't been approved yet. But uh, there are a number of other forms of it that are that are in different pipelines. Is it is uh, buprenorphine still under patent, or is it uh, there are generics available? Uh, there are generics that. available. Um, that's a that's a very interesting story by itself. And um, the company that that initially made uh, Suboxone, Rickett Benkiser, um, they had a patent on it for a number of years. And as the patent ran out on Suboxone tablets, uh, they released Suboxone film, um, and they've been. Uh, criticized um, not just by myself, but in in far more uh, important um, journals and papers and things um, um, for for trying to uh, oh they've been accused of trying to uh, uh, reduce generic competition by creating this this film. Um, their claim when they released the film was that um, because it's individually packaged, that it's safer than the tablet. And they actually petitioned the FDA to remove uh, or prevent any tablet forms of Suboxone uh, or buprenorphine naloxone from being approved. Um, the FDA uh, did not honor that and denied that request. And uh, um, you know, some people saw that as, as kind of a, a you know, real blow to Record Benkiser. They had pulled their tablet from the market. Um, um, and uh, sub Subutex, which is plain buprenorphine. Uh, they had pulled that from the market. Um, but now uh, they make Suboxone film, um, and there are a number of generics. There are generic manufacturers of Suboxone tablets, and there's also generic manufacturers of buprenorphine, uh, just plain buprenorphine. Now, the Subutex doesn't have the naloxone uh, mixed in with it. Is Is there... Are there reasons to use the subutex without the naloxone, or well, you start uh, what's the advantage? Into, sure. Mm -hmm. The one kind of a, uh, agreed upon reason to use subutex is during pregnancy, um, but you start to see kind of the flaws in the arguments when you when you look at that. You know, basically the argument is that during pregnancy, since the naloxone doesn't really do anything, um, why expose the fetus uh, to another drug. And naloxone isn't particularly harmful for a fetus. In fact, it's classified as one of the safer drugs to expose uh, uh, you know, a fetus to. But um, the thought is that um, just from a, a, a sake of uh, uh, purity or whatever, uh, to avoid giving the baby, uh, giving the fetus a, uh, a chemical that isn't uh, really important to do anything. And, and my argument is then, then why are we giving it to mothers if it doesn't do anything and if it's just an extra chemical? Um, but, um, but at least that's, you know, at this point, most Medicaid agencies, for example, uh, in Wisconsin will, will approve Suboxone uh, for people on Medicaid um, about the only thing they will approve Subutex or plain buprenorphine for is during pregnancy or breastfeeding. Um, there they, they routinely will approve uh, plain buprenorphine, what we used to call Subutex. So as now, far as... The, go ahead, go ahead. Well, as far as how they work, you know, the, the, the thing is that buprenorphine does everything. So the naloxone is only there to deter intravenous injection. And that's, that's something that um, is commonly missed by you know, pharmacists and other doctors. I hear all the time you know, the comment that, you know, well, that doesn't have the naloxone in it, so it doesn't have the cap on it. And that has nothing to do with the sealing effects of buprenorphine. That's all just buprenorphine. And uh, the naloxone, you know, is only there as a deterrent. When you look at studies of people taking Suboxone and compare them to people who take plain buprenorphine, um, there isn't a huge difference between the two. 
um, the liking scores for buprenorphine plus naloxone are a bit lower than the liking scores for plain buprenorphine when they're taken by um, opioid addicts who are in withdrawal. And so you know, people, when they can compare the two, they will uh, notice a slight difference between the two. But um, people do inject Suboxone um, and they inject buprenorphine. Um, the, there's some research that shows that, that buprenorphine is injected at a higher rate than Suboxone, but the problem is that those research studies are all very biased because buprenorphine tends to be prescribed to people who don't have insurance. It's much less expensive. It's $2.5 a tablet compared to Suboxone film, which is $8. And so you know, the, the time that people prescribe buprenorphine is often to a person who's lost his or her insurance, is out of work, and the, uh, you know, the rates of intravenous drug use are higher in people who are unemployed and, uh, uh, than, than they are in people who are you know, working 40 hours a week and have, have health insurance. And so um, it's hard to get a real, a real clear sense on the difference between the, the medications. Now, I wanted to, you to compare buprenorphine with uh, methadone. And, I mean, are there some people for whom methadone is the best solution, or could everybody get switched over to buprenorphine, or what do you think? You know, when I started prescribing buprenorphine, um, people who had been taking pain pills, you know, oxycodone, either from a doctor or from on the street um, for years, uh, they just did amazingly well on Suboxone or buprenorphine. They they took it. They came in with tears on their running down their cheeks, saying that they never thought the obsession would end. They were grateful, um, and uh, and that's what really excited me about the medication. It reminded me of being an anesthesiologist and doing labor epidurals, where you know the patients are just genuinely happy to see your face. Um, but as time has gone on and heroin has become uh, much more of an issue uh, and, and young people are using heroin much more, um, they don't do as well with buprenorphine as, as the older folks did. And by older, I'm talking you know, my age, 50s, um, uh, 40s, you know, people, people who have had 10 years stuck on opioids, you know, they get very miserable and uh, they're in a position where they're just grateful to be away from it. Younger people, at least in my experience, um, they'll take their, the, the buprenorphine or suboxone and um, they'll, you know, they'll, they'll, they'll take it regularly or maybe they'll have a parent who witnesses them taking it each morning. But then many of them will go out and still use heroin. They'll still inject. And I'll ask them uh, after when they come in, and um, usually um, uh, they'll tell me while I'm testing uh, their urine, I'll, I'll say, um, so anything in your urine? And, and they'll say, uh, you know, yeah, yeah I, I used actually uh, four days ago. It might show up. Um, and I'll ask them, you know, did you feel anything when you used it? And and they'll say no. And uh, I say, well, why did why did you use it? And and they'll say, I, I don't know. I just I just couldn't help it. And those people, I mean, I try my best to um, stay with people as long as as long as their heart uh, appears to be in the right place. And I know that's that's kind of a silly thing to say with addiction because all you know, people can we can really get you know turned into desperate people uh, uh, when we're addicted mm -hmm. to something. But, um, you know, if, if someone is selling the drug or sharing the drug, I, you know, um, that, that I, I really don't want to treat them anymore and I don't want to prescribe buprenorphine or Suboxone for them. But someone who, uh, there are people who uh, just struggle uh, for a while, maybe a period of months, um, and then eventually, uh, if you stick with them and uh, counsel them on, you know, trying to bring things to the surface of how uh, how the mind is working and driving them to use, 
some of those people uh, will get their act together, but some of them uh, end up, uh, at least in my area, um, you know, discharged, and uh, and you know, some do fine with methadone. Um, so I think, you know, methadone certainly has, uh, uh, oh, it has a reputation for being, I think, a, uh, something for harder core addicts, people who, you know, the buprenorphine is kind of the, uh, the treatment for people who don't have real, real bad addiction. I don't think that's true so much. I, I, I think that uh, buprenorphine, suboxone, because you're giving a prescription, um, the people who are getting it, they really, you're trusting them. And at some point, because of the diversion issue and, you know, all those, those things that society is concerned about, um, you can't be handing out prescriptions to a person if they if they you know keep on on failing uh, or or you know doing something with the medication that's that's illegal, um, and so uh, so methadone you know, becomes a, a place I think for people that that struggle with buprenorphine, and there, there's also many places where there are no doctors uh, to prescribe uh, buprenorphine and. Um, around this area, uh, we have we have a waiting list in my practice of about 90 people uh, for Suboxone, and since I prescribe it long term, it's kind of like the Green Bay Packers season ticket waiting list. It'll, you know, someone who gets on it now, um, there'll be an opening in 10 years or so. Um, but um, mm-hmm. so those some of those people end up on methadone too. And you currently you're prescribing to 100 people. Yes. And you yeah. maxed out at 100. You can't get permission to prescribe to more than 100. No, not at this point. I um, actually put a, one of these uh, petitions in on the White House um, website uh, a year ago. You know, you can uh, put something on there. It used to be that if something had 25,000 uh, signatures um, on the White House site, then there was a promise that it would be looked at and considered I think that number is higher now. Um, I think they raised the number, but I, I think I ended up getting several hundred <laughs> signatures is all I could pull anyway. But um, there, it, it will require um, you know, either a, a presidential you know, uh, uh, declaration or whatever. Uh, I, I can't remember what they call it when the president just makes that decision um, or an act of Congress, um, a change in the law. So... Um, there's a something called the Harrison Act that's been around since 1916 or so. Um, 1914. 14. Mm-hmm. <laughs> yeah, somewhere back yeah. then. So it, you know, buprenorphine was an exception to the Harrison Act, and uh, um, I believe methadone was the first exception, and buprenorphine is the second. Um, but it requires, you know, it requires an act of Congress to get around it. So. Um, and I'm, no one's really excited that that's you know around the corner anytime real soon. Mm-hmm. Now there are places in the world like Switzerland and some others that have heroin-assisted treatment. Uh, what do you think of that as a possibility? I, you know, I think I think it, it's better than dying. Yeah, you know, and <laughs> I mean the the death rate is just so high with with opioid dependence, and um, you know that's something. Yeah, I, I was in medical school uh, when when HIV was discovered and uh, described, and I remember the outrage that uh, President Reagan uh, back in the 80s didn't mention um, uh, AIDS for or uh, HIV for a number of years. I don't think he did throughout his presidency. And um, you know, opioid dependence now kills more people than motor vehicle accidents. And um, it's just, you know, it's it's just incredible how many people have been touched by it. How many families of, um, uh, you know, of people who um, never dreamed they'd ever be touched by uh, by addiction. Um, so, you know, anything, anything, I think, uh, um, has to be considered. You know, the heroin and morphine, I believe, is used in some countries as well, um, mm-hmm. and. Uh, uh, you know, the, the issue is just that um, the faster a drug is metabolized, the more it's going to wear off in between doses. And so methadone is, is, is real useful because it binds to proteins in the brain. It lasts a long time. 
and blood levels don't fluctuate very much from one dose to the next. Um, but heroin is metabolized more quickly, and um, so you know, I, I guess that would I, I've never you know worked in that type of program or seen people treated that way. But I guess my my concern would be that they would have craving throughout the day as the heroin wore off, and I'm, I'm not sure how they get around that problem. Yeah, I think they might need more than one dose per day. Um, you know, it's, I, I know sense. in Switzerland, I know in Switzerland, it's for people who are not succeeding with methadone. Um, you know, people who've been trying to use methadone and not succeeding with it for a long long period those are the people that are referred to the heroin assisted treatment it's just not everybody that uses heroin get that but it's people that don't succeed with the other approaches okay yeah yeah you know it's it's an area that obviously you know the public is going to have strong opinions about i'm sure and um, you know, heroin is diacetylmorphine. It's just another opioid. Um, you know, we we have the specter of you know evil around it, and uh, as you know, I'm sure heroin is a trade name. I believe it was Bayer Chemical Company that came out mm-hmm. with that trade name, and um, it's just uh, just another you know just another opioid. Um, but in this country, it was banned uh, a number of years ago. Again, I think it was around the 1930s, and that's certain. Um, but yeah, opioids, I was just preparing a lecture recently on opioids and reading about the history. And of course, I go to the resource many doctors go to you know, Wikipedia and um, reading about the history of opioids. This is fascinating reading and how uh, I believe it said that uh, uh, around uh, 1911, one in 400 U.S. citizens was addicted to opioids and most of them were women. It, they were used in different elixirs for, you know, quote, female mm-hmm. problems. And, um, and addiction apparently was, was quite, a, quite a big thing back then. And, and um, uh, it's just kind of, it's funny how we've kind of come full circle. Yeah, yeah, I know. I mean, uh, you know, they say uh, in that period of time, around 1900, the, the typical opioid addict was uh, the grandma at church that was baking you the cookies. You know, it was not the demon and the monster that we are see portrayed on television today. Yeah, yeah, yeah taking a tonic and, and uh, yeah, the traveling salesman or whatever. But uh, interesting. Uh, well, if someone wants to come off buprenorphine, if they do want to get off, uh, do you recommend that they taper, or how should they do it? Or what do you think about that? Uh, well... You know, the, the first thing I, I recommend to people is to try not to let it become your life. And so I'll, I'll tell my patients, uh, if, if it becomes an issue to them, it's something to try maybe once a year and you know, make a run for it. You know, spend three months on it. Um, and if you're not successful, go back to... Uh, taking again, if you have a doctor who's willing to do this, go back uh, to taking the medication um, at, at the regular dose. And you know, we don't have any evidence of long-term harm from buprenorphine. All opioids reduce testosterone levels in men to some extent, but otherwise, uh, it doesn't harm the liver. There, there have been several. Uh, cases of liver damage in people on buprenorphine, but they all were people with hepatitis C. They all were people who were injecting the drug. And um, so I, I tell people, that, you know, if you really convince you want off it, um, see if you can do it. And if you can't, just drop it for a little while and try again. And, and people seem to get to a point um, where they're they're more able. But as far as which one tapering or, you know, as they say, jumping, um, meaning you know, stopping from a higher dose, um, the forum that I have, Subox Forum, uh, is a, a common topic, and, and people do all different ways. And I really don't have a sense that one is reliably better than the other. Uh, some people, the problem with tapering that I see is that it's a long process. It takes weeks and weeks and weeks to get down to a real low dose. And some people just can't do that. They, they get a month into it, and that part of their brain that uh, the addict controls 
uh, they wake up one day and they're depressed about something and they just they've just had it and they go back to the full dose and all that time has been wasted um, so someone like that may be better off um, stopping from a higher dose you know cleaning out uh, the house of everything um, taking some time off work uh, if you can and um, and stopping um, so it, it, I've seen people do both. Um, the problem with tapering also is that uh, it's hard uh, to get into real low doses. The, uh, the medication is, is very potent. And back when buprenorphine was used only for pain, it was used in doses around 50 to 100 micrograms. And there's a thousand micrograms in a milligram. And so uh, to taper down, if a person gets down to one milligram, which would be one eighth of a strip of buprenorphine or suboxone, um, they're still taking a thousand micrograms of buprenorphine, which is a significant dose of narcotic. And um, you know, they really have to get lower if they, if they want to stop without, without having significant withdrawal. So some some people have done things like, um, oh, dissolved a tablet or a strip in water, use an eyedropper and count the number of drops, you know, things like that. Again, that wouldn't be FDA approved, um, um, but uh, it is something I know some people have used to, uh, to taper off uh, just because there's not really a good form of the medication that's uh, small enough to divide. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Now, there's a lot of people that say uh, cigarette addiction is harder to kick than opioid addiction. What do you think about that? Uh, you know, I don't know. You know, um, I've, I've had opioid addiction. I haven't had cigarette addiction. So, um, you know, looking at, at patients, you know, they're both they're, they're they're both certainly difficult. I think, you know, the difference is that. From, again, from, from what I see anyway, when people quit smoking cigarettes, I think a higher proportion of them stay away from cigarettes. Um, but opioid dependence, you know, it's, it's the gift that keeps giving. It's something that um, people will think is out of their life, like I did. And then uh, five years, seven years, you know, ten years later, it will come back again. And... Um, um, cigarettes, you know, I, I don't think are quite the same way as far as you know something that uh, that comes back. Um, you know, some people return to smoking, but I, I would I would guess the relapse numbers are much higher with opiates. Hmm, I wonder because relapse numbers are pretty high with cigarettes too. But uh, yeah, well, we'd have to look at some data. We'd have to look at some data. Um, so tell us a little bit about your book, um, the the user's guide to buprenorphine. I think that's called what it's called. Yeah, I mean it's it's an ebook. You know, it's something I put together back at a time when um, I would spend so much time on uh, the the phone or on email trying to straighten out uh, doctors on how buprenorphine works. And so it it basically uh, talks about the the basic things that someone on uh, buprenorphine or suboxone is going to run into. So how to handle surgery, how to handle pregnancy, um, and uh, um, you know some things about tapering, some things about relapse rates. Um, you know, surgery um, uh, is, is something that, that needs to be coordinated when a person is on buprenorphine. Um, the drug uh, uh, does two things. One, it blocks the receptors and keeps pain medications from working. And the other thing it does, it, it gives the patient a high tolerance to opioids. And so if a person is going to have surgery, um, there are doctors out there who think that you can just have them take their buprenorphine and they'll be fine for surgery. And, of course, that isn't true. They're, they're tolerant to their buprenorphine. It's, it, they're normal when they take it. And so um, a person who has surgery is going to need a high dose of an agonist like oxycodone um, or Dilaudid uh, to treat their pain. And um, there's a... There's a guide that's put out by NIH uh, that talks about uh, managing uh, surgery and people on buprenorphine, a, a review article. And 
what they recommend is is just stopping, you know, just hold your Suboxone uh, for a week and then have surgery or a couple weeks. Um, people on Suboxone know um, it's more complicated than that. They can't just hold their Suboxone for two weeks. And so um, I, I usually recommend people uh, handle that differently. And I, I don't want to get too specific, and I, I just remind people here too you know obviously I'm, these 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 things are, are things that require a physician to uh, the, the prescriber to really take some time and 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 apply them individually i don't want to kind of encourage people to, to you know treat themselves in some way but um, but generally when when they have surgery they have to uh take a higher dose of oxycodone and take a lower dose of buprenorphine and so we'll have people Put, um, take their buprenorphine dose down to maybe four milligrams or two milligrams, um, high enough that they don't go into withdrawal, but low enough that you can outcompete it with uh, with oxycodone or a different opioid agonist. Um, so that's that's the main thing that the user's guide it talks about that and it talks about pregnancy. Um, you know, women can have epidurals if they're on Suboxone or buprenorphine. The local anesthetic isn't affected at all. Um, so, you know, they can have spinal anesthesia. They can have epidural anesthesia. They can have general. Um, but the problem is the pain control. And it doesn't have to be a problem if if doctors remember their medical school training, which was to treat to effect, basically don't focus on the numbers of the you know, number of milligrams. Look at the patient. Look at their respiratory rate. Look at their comfort level. If you're not comfortable, give them extra monitoring in the ICU or some other you know, type of step-up unit. Um, but um, if, if patients are given a higher dose of narcotic, they do fine. Um, and, uh, and again, I, I believe that uh, that it's it's a pretty safe thing to do in the hospital, um, just just from looking at the you know the fairly low uh, harm that comes from buprenorphine. You know, one other thing maybe I'll mention. I got a second up. You know, there's a lot of focus right now on buprenorphine diversion, which is buprenorphine being used by people who aren't prescribed the medication, and. Um, that's certainly a problem and an issue, um, but I uh, oh I'm disappointed to see in some parts of uh, oh the Midwest uh, when I talk to pharmacists or other doctors uh, where people used to say we have a heroin problem, they say now you know we have a we really have a suboxone problem, and the result of that. Uh, is states um, enacting regulations that discourage more doctors from prescribing the, the medication. The diversion problem in part uh, is because people can't find a doctor certified to prescribe the drug, and so there's this black market. And I'll, I'll tell a story in, in a blog post uh, about, imagine a, a fatal illness sweeping the country and um, um, there's a cure, but only a few doctors can prescribe it. And, uh, you know, of course, everyone is going to scramble to get it for themselves or for their children. Um, and that's what we have with Suboxone. And, um, you know, the, the diversion problem, while, while I admit it's ugly, it's, it's not a good thing, um, but uh, it doesn't kill people, uh, the, uh, not, not in the masses that... Uh, that opioid addiction kills people, and, and and yes, there are there are some innocent victims out there that that are just horrible stories. But um, I think that that we get a little twisted when when we get so concerned about diversion when most of the people who are diverting Suboxone are people who are struggling with their own heroin addiction. They're trying to take a couple of days off from the drug by buying a tablet of Suboxone for $20, um, or there's no heroin around, and they're trying to keep from getting sick by taking Suboxone. They're not getting high. They're getting normal. They're getting their withdrawal treated. And um, even the injection of Suboxone, the, the body doesn't know which molecules were injected 
and which ones were taken properly. So the injected Suboxone doesn't make a person high. It just adds to the blood level and makes them feel uh, normal. Um, and um, the reason people inject the drug is that when it's taken orally, about 25% of a tablet gets absorbed. When they inject it, 100% is absorbed. So when someone is buying a tablet of Suboxone and they're using it to try to avoid withdrawal, um, if they inject it, it's going to last four or five times longer. And again, as, as ugly as injecting is, to someone who's used to injecting black tar heroin, uh, injecting a strip of Suboxone is is a step up. You know, it's it's something mm -hmm. they don't see as horrible um, because it looks a lot better than what they're used to injecting. And so, mm -hmm. I, I think you know some of the issues that um, the things that that news stories will say uh, they'll only touch on the surface. They'll talk about the drug is diverted in this amount. No one takes the time to go on to say what diversion means, what the consequences are and uh, um, you know, what the consequences of, of untreated opioid addiction consist of. Mm -hmm. Now, I'm sure that there's some people in our audience that are saying to themselves, <clears throat> what about rehab? Isn't rehab effective? Can't we just send everyone with opioid addiction to rehab and they will all quit completely? Is rehab effective? Well, you know, it was for me, but again, I always say, you know, you put a person in a cage and you can keep them clean um, most of the time. You know, the, the prisons have holes in them too. Um, but, um, you know, my my treatment was, was really unique. And, you know, luckily I had a, a vacation property um, that I could uh, get rid of to pay for my addiction treatment. Um, many people can't do that. They don't, you know, have... Um, you know, $50,000 they can invest in their treatment, but uh, to stay someplace for three, four, five months. Um, but then beyond that, um, the the thing that really helped me, I believe, was that for six years um, I was giving urine samples twice a week, and the reminder was always there, just always there. Um, um, you know, never more than two or three days away. And um, I mentioned, I, I believe to you earlier, that um, I had a poppy seed muffin at Starbucks one day, and uh, the next morning I got a call from the medical board. It showed up in the urine test, and that's how quick uh, the consequences were. I had to, you know, go and uh, to the city where the board meets and sit in a room with 30 people and explain myself. And I was scared to death that this was the end of my ability to ever practice medicine. Um, so, you know, when you compare that to what most people go through, where maybe they're going to treatment because someone is making them, you know, relatives making them go, their heart isn't really in it, or maybe their heart's really in it, but, you know, they, they, see, edu they see it as an educational experience, um, and they don't understand that it. it has to be something that, you know, truly is transformative, and even then, they have to find a way to keep from changing back uh, for the rest of their life. Um, the numbers aren't great, as you know, I'm sure, with residential treatment. Mm -hmm. The success rates are low, um, much lower, I think, than most people believe or would, would think if you just ask people in the street. Uh, I think most people think you send a treatment and you do better, and you know, you're talking about 5%, 10% of the people who go to treatment that have any type of sobriety um, afterward. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Yeah, that's a, that's a myth that a lot of people believe that, that, that treatments, rehabs are highly effective. We had Ann Fletcher on the show uh, not long ago who wrote the book Inside Rehab, and you know what we know is uh, most rehabs aren't, aren't any more effective than quitting on your own. In fact, uh, you know, we find when people, when people are determined to make change, you know, doing it on their own is often very effective. Yeah, especially if they... If they do something, you know, for me, the seven years of good, oh, recovery, quote unquote, that I had the first time around, um, you know, I was going to meetings all the time and I really was a, a zealot and I, I, I lived and breathed. Um, you know, I often say, people will often say, well, on, on Suboxone, you're not normal. And I'll, when you go to AA, you're not normal either. You know, I can't speak on behalf of them because that's not how they work. But, but to, to, to be in recovery in a STEP program, you have to be different. You have to be 
constantly focused on rigorous honesty. You know, you have to be um, controlling your environment and, and, you know, just really playing an active role in everything you do. And so um, it's not exactly natural either. Um, so I, I think buprenorphine really, it's, it's just the ideal medication if, if we could, uh, I don't know, get, get some of the myths out of the way and, and uh, just see it as a medication that's used chronically for, for chronic illness. Well, we're about out of time. So if you would like to give us the name of your website. Sure, thank you. I, um, I have a blog called Suboxone Talk Zone, and that's just Suboxone Talk Zone uh, Talk. i got to watch how I say it because you're in New York and I'm in Wisconsin. But uh, SuboxoneTalkZone.com. <laughs> and then there's a forum, SuboxForum.com, that uh, is associated with that. And we got about oh twelve thousand registered members, um, and um, it's a it's a lively place. I, we let people talk about what they want to talk about, even if I don't agree with with uh, their plans to taper off. Every now and then, I'll put that out there that I don't agree, <laughs> but we let people you know argue and talk and and debate it, and um, as long as they treat each other with respect. Okay, thanks for being our guest this evening, uh, Dr. Jeffrey Junig, and everyone uh, come back next week and we'll have another show for you. Thank you very much for having me. I really appreciate it. Okay, good night, everybody. With lucky landslots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. Dearly beloved, we are gathered here today to... Has anyone seen the bride and groom? Sorry, sorry, we're here. We were getting lucky in the limo and we lost track of time. No, Lucky Land Casino, with cash prizes that add up quicker than a guest registry. In that case, I pronounce you lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Daily bonuses are waiting. No purchase necessary. Void were prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details.